listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah, but with the role of Sarah being played by Dylan today. Doing her best effort. <laughs> Sarah's still sick. If you go down to the Arts Centre from now until the 27th of August, you can catch a show entitled The Guru of Chai. It's presented by a company called Indian Inc. We're joined in the Breakfast studio by Jacob Rajan, performer, founding partner and company director of Indian Inc. Welcome to Breakfast, Jacob. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. Maybe we can start off by getting you to tell us something about Indian Inc. This is a show about India, as the title suggests, but you're based in New Zealand. So how did Indian Inc. come about? Uh, it came about as me being an Indian actor and eating work. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was the first Indian graduate from the National Drama School, uh, Toy Fakari, in, in New Zealand. And when I left drama school, the, the phone, let's say, wasn't ringing off the hook for, <laughs> for work. But I, I kind of uh, had a had a, a yin for writing my own stuff anyway, because the stuff that I was, <laughs> tell, I'll tell you. Okay, so spit it out. I'm the son of Indian immigrant parents, so I was supposed to be a doctor. <laughs> and uh, when my parents saw me trot off to drama school, it was with a great deal of trepidation. But it wasn't that I first had to get a microbiology degree, a BSc in microbiology, and a primary school teaching diploma. And oh, then no. they finally said, oh, go on then. And so I went, went to drama school and I wrote a little piece at dra- in drama school, a 20-minute show um, called Krishnan's Dairy. And, of course, because we're in Australia, you don't know what a dairy is. It's a, it's a milk bar or a servo. Oh, know, yeah. oh, okay. Primarily yep. run by Indian immigrant um, you know, families in New Zealand. Uh, my, my own parents weren't dairy owners, but um, I, I just wrote this story. And, and it was so well-received that uh, they, my tutors encouraged me to turn it into a full-length play when I, when I left drama school, and I did. And so uh, I got together with my director, Justin Lewis. Uh, we, we met doing another show, and um, we formed Indian Ink Theatre Company. That was in 1997. And Christian's Dairy became a little bit of a phenomenon in, in New Zealand and around the world. We um, sold out everywhere and have for 20 years. We've been performing that show and it went to Edinburgh, got a fringe first, five stars, you know, sold out there for a month. It was just a little golden child. So and no need to practice medicine then? No, no. Well, you know, it's always something <laughs> Do your to parents back on. still <laughs> see you as successful though? Ah, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing with the Indian community because I'll often do kind of charity gigs and things and you still get people coming up to me after mm. and say, that was great, what else do you do? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do really? <laughs> okay, so this show is based on the fairy tale of Punchkin. What's that and what role does it have in Indian culture? I mean, is this a story that everyone... Knows? No, 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 not at all. Um, but Justin and I were thinking about doing a children's show, and uh, we we were researching and found this this story in a dusty corner of the internet um, called Punchkin. And I thought this kind of sounds Russian to me, you know, Punchkin. Yeah. It's not a really Indianish name, but reading the story, it's a, it's a rambling kind of, as a lot of Indian stories are. It, it just was very kind of confusing but there was this 
something in there that I really liked, but we couldn't do it for children because it was so dark. <laughs> and I think if if you go to the original Grimm's fairy tales, they are really so dark. Mm-hmm. Know, Cutting off thumbs. And, yeah. violent. Yeah. Well, this took it to another level. And so we kind of shelved the children's story idea, but the story itself still was really getting under our skin. So we said, why don't we make it as an adult play? But then it was still very much a fairy story. It was like princesses and kings and queens and didn't seem to have much relevance for a contemporary adult audience. Then a dramaturge, if you don't know what a dramaturge is, sort of a grown-up that we have that looks (laughs) at our play structurally and stuff. He suggested, Murray suggested, why don't you set the the play in modern India? And then that was like a lightning rod kind of moment. We, We... Took the took the story apart and reassembled it in contemporary India, and suddenly we had this sort of uh, comic romantic thriller. Um, because I, I don't know, you know, a lot of Hollywood movies they actually use fairy tales as mm. their templates, and and we had one. So you had lots of great characters and r- lots of real dramatic moments that are embedded within a, a story that has lasted for all time. Um, so you, I think if you read the original story, you probably wouldn't recognise the play now. Guru of Chai has, has taken you know a lot of imaginative kind of leaps, but there are certain dramatic situations that are key, and they are still there. Um, so yeah, we, we we spent about two years. We take about two years. We're kind of lazy and slow <laughs> to put a show together, um, and so that and we launched it in people's houses. So that, that was the other thing. I mean, the yes, yeah, so, so I read that. I was going to ask you about that. Seems an extraordinary thing to do. So you're just going around to individual people's houses yeah. and putting on the play in their lounge room. Yeah, yeah. We'd rock up to your house about two hours before a show, clear out all your furniture, and then set up an entire theatre set inside your living room. I assume Oof. people had a, had a say in in that. Well, Would you just turn up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they, it was uh, you, that, that that was a leap of faith in terms of the host. You know that. <laughs> Because were they friends or no? We we got funding to do this like thirty house performances, and then we just put it out to our database, and and people. How many up. people would you like would be there in there for a performance? Yeah, well, it varied, but in the terms of the size of the house. So if you lived in an apartment, we could Not probably many. squeeze about forty. Um, and it's surprising how many people you can put into a space when you clear out all the furniture, and then you know you put in little folding. Would you put it back stuff. in? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it was kind of cool, but it was really hard yakka because you're doing a pack in and a pack in yeah. every night and shifting furniture. <laughs> Wait, but if you're in it's such a, a, a close, you know, environment, is where's the fourth wall? Do you have one or no? Well, this this show is very much the guru, the character himself is the storyteller, so he's he's channeling about seventeen different characters, and that's you. You, you yeah, play yeah, all the characters. Yeah, yeah. But he's speaking to the audience the entire time as well. So there's no fourth wall. You, oh, that's you know, awesome. You're dipping in and out of the story and then talking to the audience and then coming back. So the house performances sort of set the template. They have still has a sort of DNA of the house performances in the show. It's this intimate storytelling bubble where we, when you go to this theatre like at, at the George Fairfax at the Art Centre, you're just expanding that, that intimacy out to 300 people. still feels like you're in a living room. You know, it's the... The origins of theatre, I reckon. You know, people in a cave hearing a story. Mm. Like when you're in a small place like that, you can see the faces of everybody. Oh yeah. In <laughs> in the audience, how does that differ from you know being in a theatre? How do you 
because I find it quite um, – it's a bit confronting being able to see people's expressions. Yeah, and and actually, you know, it's a great – it's a great question because I think it's also confronting for the people yeah. because they're very visible. You kind of disappear when you're in a 300-seater mm-hmm. and, and you have that anonymity. But, you know, if if a cell phone goes off and when you're with, like, 40 people, we all know. Mm. <laughs> we know it's you. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to call you out on it as well because I can see exactly where it's coming from. So there, there's it, – it, but it's that, it has that kind of – the thing that theatre does that TV and film can't, you know, we're sharing the same air. And so this show in particular, sorry, just thumped sorry. the table. Um, this show in particular relishes that, you know, it really, it's not audience participation in that horrible kind of yucky thing of embarrassing the audience, mm. but we're so present in, in all being in the story. When, when the guru starts to actually tell the story um, that is Punchkin, uh, it's a story from his own life, and people are actually uh, on a good night transported to India for you know an hour and a half. And You've taken this show to other countries across the world. Have you taken it to India? And yeah. And what was the reaction there for you from someone from a play from the diaspora? I guess coming back to India. Well, that, that's funny you should say that, Jeff, because <laughs> <laughs> I performed it in India in 2014. And um, it, it, it was fantastic. It, and talking about cell phones in India, it's a completely different thing. If a cell phone goes off, you know, in New Zealand, probably in Australia, you, there'll, there'll be some poor bugger um, faffing around trying to switch it off. And, you know, <laughs> incredibly embarrassed. In, in India, they answer it. <laughs> I, you know, I'm watching something here. <laughs> no, no, go on. It's fine. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, and you know, the the venue. We said it's a it's a tiny show. You know, it's a two hander. There's a live musician and me. Only intimate venues, and um, so we arrive here, and it's a 600 seater. <laughs> oh, wow. But a very intimate six <laughs> um, But they don't do anything small, really. And so it, it was great. But the funny thing that I was going to go and say is that after the show, this, this guy came up. We were packing out, ready to kind of leave. And the guy came up and he said, um, can, I, can I talk to you guys? I'm a professor of drama here. And um, this was in Kerala, my part of India, Trichua. And he said, I specialize in theatre of the diaspora. And, um, you know, I've studied theatre about, you know, in the UK, Canada, all these Indian companies that are based offshore. Um, you're the first that has brought stuff back. I said, you're kidding me. Well, nobody else huh. has come to India with the show from like an Indian company in, in Canada or in the UK and everything. I said, nope. And he said, you know, I'd never actually heard of you. I, I, this is my thing. I'd never heard of you, but then your pamphlet arrived on my on my table, so I, I came and saw the show, and and I said, well, why do you think that is? And I know I kind of worked it out myself, really, because it's completely uneconomic. You know, yeah, we right. were doing it because we had a link with an Indian company over there that had been bugging us for years to go over there. We got some funding, and they had some sponsorship, so we got over there. But they don't have a ticket price. You know, they, it's like two bucks, if anything, and then they feel kind of miffed about paying that. <laughs> because theatre in my part of India was always political agitation. It was always to bring down the government or mm. make a political point, so you never charged for it. Yeah, right. And so to change that culture was quite a big deal and this company is trying to do it 
but you know we're we're one of the first well according to this guy the first Wow. The show is called The Guru of Chai. It's on at the Arts Centre until the 27th of August. Jump online for tickets. Presented by Indian Inc. We've been talking to Jacob Rajan, the performer and the company director of that company. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. It's time to talk film on Breakfasters with Hayley Inch. How are you going, Hayley? Oh, good morning. I'm feeling ready to zip up my lycra and get on a bike. Are you? I am. Uh, just an aside. <laughs> Hayley, I can't tell you how much I need you in my life at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> just as an aside, does anyone ever like go near Brunetti's on like a Sunday morning and there's like those gangs oh, of I've older been to, gents in I've lycra? Been. I've been to oh, cafes, mate. I've I've yeah, seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a thing. Yeah, it's the a weird lycra thing. Mobs. Like, lycra mobs, particularly on Sunday mornings. It's horrifying when you're sitting down mm. at waist level and they all walk in in a big pack. Yeah. Mammals, aren't they? Yeah. Can I Matt, think- middle-aged men's in, in lycra. Oh, what does the lycra do? Like, what is the point uh, of it? I, it makes you, well, supposedly, and as you'll sexy. find with this review, I don't know much about cycling, but uh, <laughs> it's meant to make you more aerodynamic. Yeah. But just, I, yeah. I just think, too, mate, you're not a professional no, rider. I mean, Why are you wearing lycra? Like wind drag is such a huge issue <laughs> when you're trying to get to work in the morning. <laughs> I don't know whether it's yeah, just a lot of people living out dreams of competing Maybe. in the Tour de France, or is it that they never got to wear lycra growing up, and now there's a genuine reason that they can get away with wearing lycra? Mm. Maybe, and that's what this film's about. Anyway, <laughs> talk about the film, Haley. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. We went on a mad tangent, but yes, this film that we're talking about today is called All for One, and it's a documentary about the first Australian back cycling team to head over to Europe and take on all of the grand tours, including oh. the Tour de France. Oh. So, yes, yeah, so the, uh, the team is called Orica Green Edge and it was set up by Jerry Ryan, who's the fella who uh, started up Jayco Caravans. And oh. apparently he's the sort of guy who likes cycling enough that he heads over to the Tour de France every year as a spectator to just watch the sport. And around, like, 2010, 2011, he noticed that, like, all of the team crew buses and cars and things like that all had little flags on them saying where the team was from and uh-huh. he couldn't find an Australian flag and he found out that that was because there was no Australian-backed <gasps> team that competed uh-huh. during the Tour de what, France. So what is, were Australians just competing on their own or competing in other teams? Competing in other teams right. from other countries because Australia didn't have the... Well, essentially, we didn't have the setup or the infrastructure to have a team. So old Jerry Ryan was like, oh, I'll make one. Good on him. Yeah, why not? Innovation. Thanks, Mr. Jayco. Yeah. (laughs) Was it a hard thing to do? Is that what it's about? I think it is. It was quite a hard thing to do. Basically, the idea was that they would build up a team with Australian backing, with a lot of Australian riders who'd maybe 
you know, uh, had their chance with uh, European teams and hadn't gotten the success that they kind of felt they they should have been able to. Lots of up-and-coming riders and also they start branching out as well and finding um, great international riders as well to add in the team to kind of, you know, build build out the team a bit and, and get the best riders as possible to take on things like the Tour de France and also all of the... Um, races in the lead up to the Tour de France because what I learned was you know there's a heck of a load of cycling races out there and there's all different kinds there's day races there's there's smaller tours and then there's yeah mammoth things like the Tour de France which is considered the 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 jewel of the season so it's like a sporting documentary is it more about his struggle or no it's a sporting doc so you kind of see see the setup of the team and then it's very firmly focused on the riders and the team attempting to you know win stages, win, win various laurels and that sort of thing. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it also follows a couple of um, particular riders as well. Uh, the, the, the two kind of really great stories is there's one, uh, Matthew Heyman, who's kind of an older Australian rider. I think he'd been riding for about 15 years by the time oh. we kind of see him join Green Edge. And he'd always kind of been the guy who was, you know, kind of the way cycling teams work. You have your, like, your star cyclist. This is what I wanted to ask you about. Oh, well, just, no, keep going. Yeah, keep, keep. yeah. so you have your star cyclists and then the others in the team are kind of almost like shepherds in yeah. a way in that they protect and position your star riders so at the key points in the race where, you oh. know, you need to put the acceleration on, you need to start getting aggressive and move your way to the front, you can manoeuvre your best riders by using the rest of your team into key positions where they can, like... All of a sudden, oh, strike oh, out. I've and, always been fascinated by that. that there's mm. riders out there who spend their whole life riding for other people, mm. essentially. Do they kind of go into the psychology of that? A little bit. There's definitely a sense of you get some of these riders really love doing that. They love that it, it's kind of like this team aspect of of helping other riders. And then there's other ones where kind of like uh, Matthew Heyman, you kind of get the feeling where he's kind of like, you know, I have won things. <laughs> I am capable of winning things. Please, please let me win things. Um, And, yeah, it's kind of interesting um, also how this documentary was set up in that it's directed by um, two fellas, uh, Dan Jones and Marcus Cobbledick. And Jones was actually, um, he was embedded within the team as it started because he would, um, Geraldine's laughing at surnames. Uh, Honestly, guys. (laughs) Oh, my. That was a funny name. I knew this would happen. I knew we'd all it's solve. Probably, it's probably, probably never. Oh, never I appreciate never. your effort to quickly move <laughs> so on, but that needed. Oh, sorry. Wow, well, that's amazing. Is it now the right time to read the text that explaining about um, what lycra is for? Oh, oh yes, please. Sure. It's to stop the chafing in your nether regions. Uh, oh, there you go. Yes, I imagine if you're riding bikes Just for put days. Put some bike pants on, this mate. Put a t-shirt on. Off you go. <laughs> Oh, no, T-shirts, all the cotton, all your nips would rub off. Okay, um, fair enough. Anyway. This is strange, strange to, Trying to focus. Um, yeah, back so, to yeah, so, Cobbledick. So, um, so one of the directors, not Cobbledick, Dan Jones, um, was embedded in the team as basically 
um, he started filming the team and making these little videos that he then popped up on YouTube as kind of like, and they called them like backstage access videos to the team. And it was this whole thing where they built up this image of, of the team just filled with these, you know, really kind of funny larrikin dudes who are very happy to, you know, send themselves up and do jokey things on camera and, you know, ingratiate themselves to the cycling audience. And essentially this ended up with the team, despite being so new, um, building up quite a massive following, like in, in Europe in particular, and particularly among Australians who like cycling and had never had an Australian team to follow before. And, yeah, um, a lot of the documentary is focused on how the team being Australian or mostly filled with Australians kind of makes them very different in terms of how all the other cycling you know, all the other traditional cycling teams operate. Do you get a sense of the brutality of cycling? I mean, you saw those images of that guy's legs that was circulating a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely, if you're there, if you're a bit of a ghoul and you like to see some bike stacking, there's a lot of that going on. There's a particularly horrific crash uh, later on in the film. There's a particular one day in the lead up to the Tour de France called Paris-Roubaix and 50 kilometres of it, it's about a 150 kilometre race, 50 kilometres on it of it is on cobblestones. Ooh. Oh, why would they do Cyclists that? Cyclists are mental. That's yeah. so like French. Yeah, yeah, you watch this and you're like, why are any of these people doing this? Why would wow. you want to do this? And it's during one of these races where you see one of the Green Age Edge guys Take a massive stack, oh. and it is if you do not like blood or gore, do no, do not oh, go to this movie. So, is this only for cycling fans, or if you're not into cycling, will you get something from this? Well, I, I went into it knowing nothing about cycling. I like the word peloton. That's about <laughs> it. Um, good word. <laughs> good word. It is a really good word. So, yeah, I I did get a a. a I, I did quite enjoy watching this. I liked meeting a lot of the cyclists. You know, Manny Heyman's story is really great. There's another story of a Colombian cyclist, Esteban Chavez, who is tiny and a muffin and I love him, and <laughs> who, who who comes into the team after having a massive injury and having doctors telling him he wouldn't be our cycle again, all of that, and you kind of see his story play out. That's really great. I think to really get heaps out of it, you would definitely need to know a lot more about cycling than I am, and I think you also need to go into it realising that you know this is essentially a film wanting to let you know how great Green Edge is is as a team there's not a lot of criticism going on in terms of what also might be going on with with the team essentially this this really isn't out to you know be like a really full encompassment of 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 the team or of cycling and the fact that it's made by people who are like within the team should should tell you that so all right fascinating stuff Hayley Inch, thanks very much for that. Pleasure as always. Three Triple R. Hey, do you remember when you were a kid um, and maybe you, you did something a little bit wrong and uh, but then you'd try and hide, like the lengths you went to to avoid getting into trouble? Yes. I continued into my teenage years as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's, like, for me, it was, I remember what uh, having mum and dad went away, so house party, <laughs> woo-hoo. <laughs> um, and, but I planned it 
like I went above and beyond with the planning of organising that party yeah. to avoid mum and dad finding out. So what kind of measures did you put in? Uh, my sister was a nurse and my um, brother, older brother, was is, is a truck driver. So I got um, my sister and her friend to be first aid officers. You had first aid officers? Yeah, I had two nurses. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, so they were there and my brother and his mate were doing security. So they just, you know. Oh, very properly. At, thank you. Properly managed. Yep. Wow. Still, uh, you know, and also, you know, my sister, the nurse, she was more of a security guard than a first aid officer. <laughs> I was, she, you know, she's that kind of has that very tough bedside manner of like, what are you doing? Are you are you invited to this party? Get out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. And then, but even with the time that I organised the party, like I, I worked out how long, how long and mum and dad were going to be away and when was bin night. So the bins had to be out, gone, picked up before they got home. And could you trust your brother and sister not to tell your parents? Well, I thought so. Oh. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I, yeah, I could. Because, they, you know, they had friends as well. It was their party as well. Um, but, I, you know, we were worried about the neighbours. That was another issue. Um, but And also the party finished at 11. <laughs> Like my wow. sister. My sister. <laughs> How much fun was this party? <laughs> no, it's heaps of fun. No, it was good. Everyone, everyone had a really good time. Uh, but my, because my sister walked around, and she, just to everyone, just going, party finishes at eleven, get out. Party <laughs> finishes at eleven, finish your drinks, come on, off you go. And then so there was no problems. And and then it was me. Um, you know, I had a few friends that stayed the night and stuff. So, you know, we had our own little party that continued on. Um, but yeah, I, the lengths I went to to a- avoid mum and dad finding out. And and then my sister from Perth rings me and she goes, she said, mum and dad are a bit worried because they think you've had, it, they've heard that you've had a party. Oh. And I was like, well, why do they, why, hey, what have you said? <laughs> <laughs> What's happened? And it's like, well, no, they, they're just worried that you think that you're going to get into trouble when you're not because you've had a few friends over. And I was because ah. mum and dad completely got the wrong idea. You know, they thought I had a few friends over, which I did, but just a, a few more. A few more. more. <laughs> so they're like, why wouldn't you tell mum and dad that you just had some friends over? I'm like, because I had a big party. <laughs> and there were ciggies and booze and bongs around the back. Like, don't tell like mum and dad. Party. Don't tell them. Uh, so I got away with it, but the lengths. It, but it, I'm sure it also would have been fine as well if I just had it said to mum and dad I had a party, and because they, they would have come home, everything was clean, no problems, you know, everything. Then there would have been. Oh, so this you is think fine. it was more stressful going to all of these lengths to try and conceal than if you just sort of brazened it out? Yeah, imagine <laughs> like there's so many times in my life that I look back and go, oh, I should have just not been stressed about that. I I used to lie, and I think for good reason, but I just mm. couldn't handle them. They always suspected everything that I did and kind of knew it. And there was something about me that was like this obnoxious teenager that just didn't want them to have the satisfaction of actually knowing. Mm. So it was really big to sneak out when we were like 14, 15, and I'd meet up with friends, sneak out of the house at night, which now I realise that's quite upsetting for parents. But we didn't do anything. We'd just meet up. Well, sometimes we'd drink some vanilla essence or something. But for the most part... <laughs> delicious, yeah. delicious mm. vanilla essence. Yum, yum, yum. I forgot about that. We used to do oh, that too. How bad is that? When you 
you know, already emptied out whatever you could find in your parents' <laughs> alcohol bottles. Li- mm, pass this round. And you'd all pretend to be drunk. You never were. But I, we would sneak out. And often we'd just sit in the local oval talking, sharing the one cigarette we'd scabbed. And then it would be so cold and bored. But it was just the idea that we were out at night. And I remember doing that one night and then overstaying our time in the park and realising that mum had a, she had a nursing shift she had to get up for mm. and going, oh, shit, like if I go home... Now she might be awake, she might not be awake. Maybe oh, I'll come no. home exactly when she's coming out. So I had to spend the entire night in a park. In a park. Just out of. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. Did you, I, did you avoid getting caught though? Yeah, I didn't get caught, which was a good thing. But I just thought, why didn't I? I'm sure if I'd gone home and just. I could have lied a bit better. I could have gone home and said I'd gone for an early morning walk. I don't think she yeah. would have suspected that I'd been out. But I just, I just didn't want that. I didn't want her getting any kind of yeah. It's another wind one of those of stories where it makes you think of poor bloody parents. Like you've just been I up know, there right? visiting your relations in Sydney. Imagine yeah. like you know, like now you know people have got kids. Imagine oh. the horror if they go to check the kids are there and they're not <laughs> in the bed. It's yeah. so mean. It's so mean for no good reason. Just because yeah, I think it's right. cool just, to hang out in the oval, the oval at night. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry about us. <laughs> Nothing sus. Did you ever? Did you ever oh, sneak out? I. The, when you were when you were mentioning this, the story that came to mind, you know, when you've got those memories, like when you're really, really young, you're not totally sure they happened, but they're just really stuck in your mind. It was when I was must have been like in preschool. I remember we were in a library. We were being taught how to read, or we were reading, mm. reading books. And the librarian, we all had these books, and the librarian said, "You've got to just put them away neatly, right?" Yeah. And I was this good little boy, but I couldn't put the cover of the book back in properly. Like it wouldn't like it was like one of those picture books that uh, it was oh, in a sleeve. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And so I just roughly pushed it off the <laughs> oh, no. and shoved it on the shelf. Such a Jeff, <laughs> Jeff manoeuvre. <laughs> and then just thought that they wouldn't notice. And then when he came back, I he's doing as a kid, and you're like, oh, this is so bad. Saying, who did that? It wasn't me. It was obviously the book that I've been reading. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was one of the. I can remember you know, that, that you just oh, you just want yeah. the floor to open yeah. up. Yeah. Oh my god. And it's totally. If I'd said, just said to him, actually, I don't know how to do it. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't have. But I just thought for some reason I thought he would think. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't grown up. Or that. my best mate when we were in year two, she tied her shoelaces together. Have I told you this before? No. So okay, we were in class and she just tied her shoelaces together. And she was a. She used to get teased a lot. This is actually before we were friends. We, got, we were friends later on when she was cooler. <laughs> uh, but she she tied her she tied her shoelaces together and couldn't get them undone. And then realised. Oh, like this is so embarrassing. I'm gonna and and we had sport that day and we all got up to go to sport and she had to kind of waddle out with her shoelaces tied together and the teacher's like, Why are your shoelaces tied together? And she goes, Oh, you know, so and so did it and just pointed to one of the boys in the class and then the teacher, you know, went through this big kind of did you do it? And he was denying it and then then the teacher sat us all down, she goes, All right, you're all coming in. No sport, no sport today and sport was the most oh, no. fun thing you could do. And she goes, We're gonna sit here for all the sport until someone confesses. Oh, no. And at this point my best mate was like, Oh shit <laughs> Like like this has gone so far. I just have to go with it. And we sat there for all the sport. No one confessed because no one had done it. And then after forty five minutes the teacher's like Rose, did you tie them together yourself? <laughs> She's like, yes, miss. <laughs> Everyone hated her for a year. <sighs> Three. Triple. Ah.
You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Killing Ground is a new Australian movie that you can catch with screenings with Q&A at the Kino and Lido this Saturday and Sunday. It stars, among others, recent Breakfasters guest Aaron Peterson, but it's written and directed by Damien Power, who is joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. This is your debut as a director. You're also the writer of this film. How long were you working to bring Killing Ground to the screen? Uh, it's been a long, long road. <laughs> um, I think the, the germ of the idea actually first occurred to me 11 years before I actually got to shoot it. Um, and it's been almost two years um, since we shot it. So we premiered at um, MIF um, here last year um, and it's been on the festival circuit um, for a year now. So, yeah, it's been a long journey. So you're over it now? Uh, no, no. Um, it's, it's always great to see it um, with an audience yeah. um, and, you know, to see fresh people jump and scream. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most striking elements of the film is the way it utilises time. I'm not sure if that's a spoiler, so I won't go into it too much detail but was that a structure that was always with you when you came up with the idea or was that something that you developed as you started filming? Yeah no I wrote it um, at least the opening in a non-linear um, way right from the beginning um, and the reason I did that was because you know I wanted to spend a bit of time with all of the characters you know so we spend a bit of time with the campers um, we spend a bit of time with the villains before we know you know who they really are um, and the other thing that I wanted to do is, you know, we've all seen those films where people go to the woods and bad things happen. So mm. you've got to try and bring something new to the table. And those films are always relentlessly linear. Um, so I felt if I could do, if I could make this structure work, that the audience would be more active in the storytelling in the first part of the film. So they'd be leaning in, trying to work out, well, who's that? And how are they related to that person? And where are we now? Um, as they try and work out, well, what happened um, to the campers in the tent and uh, you know I think it works like that you know people get increasingly anxious waiting for these story threads to, to tie meet. up together and meet um, so yeah I think it's a it's been a fun way to to open the film it could have been really confusing I feel like it's a style that could have been a disaster but it works really nicely what did you have to do to ensure that yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think what it is, it's, it's a simple story told in a complex way. Mm. Um, and you can, you, it doesn't work to tell a complex story in a complex way. Um, so I think that, um, you know, there are, and there are enough clues to, you know, lead audiences, you know, through that um, time period without them getting too confused. Yeah. Uh, Killing Ground's a horror movie set in the bush, as you say. If you think of Australian film history from, I don't know, Waking Fright to Wolf Creek, there's a long tradition of portraying the bush as this menacing presence in Australia. So were, were you conscious of working within that structure and tradition? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. You know, I think it's a uniquely Australian thing too for us to make these films about, particularly about white Australians' unease in their own backyard. And, you know, we find as much to be scared of in the empty, vast nothingness um, as opposed to, you know, people or monsters, etc. So, um, yeah, I was really conscious that Killing Ground kind of fit into that tradition as well. Do you find that, sorry, do you find that the the environment is essentially another character in the film? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, I think when you're looking at, um, you know, survival thrillers and those kind of, you know, horrors set in remote places, the, the landscape does become like a character. Um, it really becomes an obstacle that sort of traps you miles from help and miles from civilization. And, you know, um, certainly as we shot it, it became more and more of a, of a presence. Why do you think that kind of gothic bush horror is still so compelling 
I think it's because um, I, I think it's because you know white Australians think don't uh, aren't from the bush. You know, we we think it's hostile. We don't know how to live in it. Um, mm. So you know, it seems kind of alien. Um, mm. And you know, I think that that's the source of that fear. Really, I mean. It's hard to separate Australian attitude to the bush from the history of colonialism. And the film makes very clear that the title of the movie comes from the revelation that the camping ground where the action is set was the site of an Indigenous massacre. One of the most terrifying characters in the movie is played by Aaron Peterson, who's an Indigenous actor. Was that part written as an Indigenous role or did, was that something that just happened? Because it seems to me like part of the dynamic of the film yeah. is that, that the kind of racial interactions. Yeah, Um that role actually wasn't written um, for an Indigenous character, but the elements, the reference to a past um, massacre were in the script. And, you know, when Aaron's name came up, I thought he'd be perfect. Um, not only um, because uh, he brings a resonance to this idea of cycles of violence and um, Australia's um, history of violence, um, but also because, you know, I needed uh, an actor in that role that had the strength and charisma to be able to mentor a younger man um, essentially into murder. And, you know, Aaron has that strength and that charisma. He's an incredibly charismatic actor. Um, And when he came on board, he talked about um, his character in terms of uh, having been poisoned by this past massacre, um, which I felt was a really kind of profound um, way to think about it, um, and something that we took on board when we were when we were making the film. It also seems to be a movie about masculinity, which is often connected to the bush in uh, Australian culture. Was that something you were conscious of? I mean, m- my viewing about masculinity seems to be a major issue in one way or another for all of the characters in the film. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, not and not just in terms of men being violent. Um, you know, there are so many expectations of men as protectors um, as well that I wanted to explore. Um, you know, in many respects, uh, you know, I, I wanted the film to feel really realistic. And as a writer, I was always thinking, well, what would I do in that situation? You know, if I was confronted, you know, would I be able to save my family if we were threatened with violence? Um, and because movies tell us all the time that we can. Um, but I actually think that, you know, in real life, um, it's, it's Probably different. Not. Probably, maybe not, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I'd always think about it as, you know, um, throwing the spanner of life into a genre story, you know, mm. and then because that, you know, spins it in an interesting direction. Well, I was wondering, do you consider this horror? Because I was having this conversation with a friend recently. What constitutes horror? Because it feels just like a very real story, like a horrific story. But yeah, it, yeah. It's not necessarily. Look, I, I, I mean, shouldn't. I would describe it as a survival thriller. Yeah. Um, I mean, people call it. I've heard it called like a horror survival thriller, and you know, um, <laughs> or a horror, and it doesn't really matter what you call it. I mean, I guess the difference for me is is maybe the treatment of the violence, mm. um, because I think in a lot of horror, you're meant to enjoy the violence, you're meant to enjoy the excess of the violence and and the fear, and that's great, you know, that's um, that's fine. Um, but I think, you know, when you're treating the violence in a little bit more realistic way. Um, that we do for um, Killing Ground, it, it sort of fits more into that sort of survival thriller um, mode for me. Um, mm. And kind of, I was, you know, really harking back to those kind of character driven survival films from the 70s, like Deliverance and like Straw Dogs. Mm. 
Well, that's just something else that I wanted to ask you is that the flip side of that focus on masculinity, the toxic masculinity in the film is the violence directed against women, which is central to the movie. When you're filming scenes like that, how do you negotiate that line between an audience being horrified at what they're seeing and an audience reveling in it? Because it seems to be an issue for, with the genre as a whole. Yeah, I think, um, you know... Uh when you decide that you're going to make the violence feel real, you know it's going to have a certain impact. Um, so then it's up to me as a director to think, well, you know, how much do I want to show? How much impact do I want to have? Um, and for me, you know, it was really about um, exercising some restraint um, in what I was going to show. Um, and, you know, some of the worst violence is actually left off screen. Mm. And, mm. you know, frankly, um, I think audiences can imagine far worse than I would ever want to show them. Um, yeah. And that is actually a source of a lot of the impact. We seem to be in a, something of a golden age for horror in Australia. I mean, taking on board those questions of definition, but why is that? Why are Australian filmmakers producing so many good horror films at the moment? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was a list in uh, the New York magazine's Vulture um, of the best horror films of the year so far, and four people on that list were Australian. So there was um, Sean Byrne with The Devil's Candy, um, Kate Shortland um, with Berlin Syndrome, um, and Ben Young with Hounds of Love and Killing Ground. Um, and, you know, separately, I think they're all really strong films and it's kind of exciting um, mm. that that we're making um, those films and not necessarily set here even, you know, Did across, you guys across all, the globe. all get together and go... <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to film school with um, Sean and Kate and actually really? I met Ben for the first time in LA. Um, I haven't seen Hounds of um, Love yet because, I mean, uh, you know, I was away when it was on here mm. but um, we've been on... <laughs> The, the two films have been at lots of festivals um, in the last six months together. I just want to just, just back to the film really quickly. The performances from each of the actors is quite incredible, but I was so taken by the child in the film. Oh, yeah. And I don't want to go into too much detail um, about him because it might give some stuff away, but how did you find such a tiny little child actor? He's, he seems to be like barely two years old, but he's so wonderful in it. Yeah, we put out a call um, for uh, for twins, actually. I mean, it's always oh. great to work with twins um, because when one because you can only work with children for um, so long. Yeah. So, you know, when your hours are up, you can sub in um, the other child. At least that's the theory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we put out a call and I was a bit... And, um, uh, uh, I was a bit concerned, you know, about, you know, are the parents going to be okay and going along to, to make sure that they understood that we're going to look after the kids, even though it's, um, you know, it's a kind of tough film. Um, and I remember um, turning up at um, Kirsty and Don's house, um, the parents of the, uh, the twins, um, Liam and Riley, and um, knocked on the door you know, went in fully prepared to say, you know, look, um, it's a tough script, but we're really nice guys. We're going to look after your kids. I walk in and they had on the wall, um, it was a framed uh, poster. And you know how sometimes you can get framed posters and souvenirs, you know, like, um, and this was a poster of The Godfather um, (laughs) with a bullet clip. Okay. (laughs) And I thought, I'm pretty sure these guys are going to be cool. They'll Um, be right. Yeah. And they were fantastic, actually. Yeah, they were really great. Uh, the film's screening, as I said, this Saturday and Sunday at uh, the Kino and the Lido, and you're going to be doing Q&A at both of those? Yeah, both of those, um, along with the editor, Katie Flaxman. Excellent. The film is called Killing Ground. We've been talking to the writer and director, Damien Powell. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.